um, I forgot to print out my outlines before uh, the uh, assembly, um, well, before our Bible study. Um, so the, the outlines are actually on the back stool. And um, uh, Paul, could you please pass out those outlines? Yeah, thank you so much. We're going to be um, looking at, uh, again, something that I think is very fundamental um, to identifying God and ad- identifying with God this morning. Um, I've been teaching fundamental lessons on, on this theme for a few months now. Really the idea is scripture teaches us how do we recognize who God is, how do we recognize the truth of who God is, and how do we connect with God in a truthful way. Um, And scripture gives us a lot of ways that we can recognize God and connect with God. Um, We've talked about salvation. Most recently we've talked about dying with Jesus. Um, But this morning I want to focus on prayer. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 through 15. This is going to be a template for the lesson. Um, and then we're going to look at Psalm 145 to see how the concepts and the principles of Jesus' statements in this model prayer um, are seen in Psalm 145. And, and the hope is that this will give like a, a broader understanding of how to take these statements Jesus makes and to really pursue them further than the statement itself. You can almost think about these statements as like a domino. That what Jesus says about the kingdom, what he says about the will of the Father and forgiveness and deliverance, just think about those things as almost like the first domino that's meant to lead you down a path of greater thought, of of more thought. And so Psalm 145, again, will be the other passage we'll be looking at um, to expound a little bit on Jesus' statement. So if you've got like these tassels in your Bible, Um, It would probably help to put a tassel in Psalm 145 as we turn back and forth a little bit. Um, But in the the, uh, thought process of this, in verse 8, just to introduce, I think, a problem that I think is very common. It's a problem that I've really struggled with, and you may um, be like me. But I have as a question on the board here, have you ever felt confused of the purpose of prayer or even discouraged to pray, even because of what Jesus says in verse 8. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says, So do not be like them. And he's meaning those who use meaningless repetition in their prayers, and they think they're going to be heard just because of their repetition. He says, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So example, a way that like I've been discouraged from praying or even confused about prayer is, I would think, well, if God already knows what I need, then what's the point of even asking? Like, why am I praying if God already is anticipating my needs, if he's already going to act on my needs? Then it's like, well, what's, what's going on here? What's the purpose? Um, another, another thing that I think, th- this can be a little bit more difficult, and, and this may seem like um, almost like a fine, a fine line, um, but I think it's, it's important to distinguish something like this. I've, I've heard a lot, prayer is not for God, prayer is only for you. And this may not be meant all the time, um, but I think it's meant sometimes in the statement is said that our praying to God does not move him or impact God at all, but it's really only meant to move us. And that's partially true, but uh, I think an unintentional consequence of that statement is I have not found that to be motivating for me to pray. Um, you might be different if you've thought that or heard that. Maybe that really did motivate you. Um, but just a caution with that statement. Um, sometimes there are statements that they sound really good, but they're not 
completely true. Um, just a side note, like, I've heard a lot, in order to learn to love others, you have to learn to love yourself first, right? That it's, it's a nice sounding statement, but that's like literally the opposite of what Jesus taught in the gospel, right? Um, we learn to love others as we learn to uh, recognize God's love for us, and then when we recognize God's love for us, we deny ourselves and we love others. So there's, there can be statements that unintentionally aren't quite matching what God says in his word. So with that, I think it's important to note Jesus consistently, when he talked about prayer, he consistently emphasized that God does respond to the prayers of his children. So, for example, in the same sermon, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, will say, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And so Jesus, when he talked about prayer, he talked about it as something very interactive, that as you're speaking to God, as you're pursuing God, God is also interacting with you in the process. So one thing I want to mention is both of these statements are resolved actually in this passage. So the idea, you know, God knows what I need before I ask him, so what's the point of asking or praying? And, you know, does God, you know, does God even um, care about what I'm saying? Is he just going to give me whatever he sees I need and it really makes no difference at all what I pray or what I ask for? We're going we're gonna to see that resolved in this, in this passage, and that's very important. So we're going to start just with verse 9. Um, in, the, in the handout, I'm going to have things fleshed out a bit more. The, the uh, projector is going to be very simple this morning. It's just going to be the points with the scriptures. Um, so you'll, you'll be able to follow along a little bit more specifically in the outline this morning. But the first point is, Jesus teaches us in verse 9, first of all, that the goal of prayer is to seek God as he is, for who he is. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus then says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. If you have your marker, turn to Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at how this idea of God's name being hallowed in Psalm 145. Um, before, before we read this, um, just one note that I wanted to make. I think something that is um, simple within the language of this passage, God being a father, um, you think about the development of a child in relation to their father. There are certain things that a father will provide for his children inherently, right? So a parent understands that the child needs food and nourishment, so inherently the father is going to provide those things, you know, particularly a good father. I uh, think about clothing and, and things like that. A father is going to provide those things. But there are other things that a good parent will want a child to develop an interest in for the sake of maturity and responsibility and for the sake of being able to live in the world responsibly there are things that a parent will try to train a child to be interested in. And if a child never learns to be interested in those mature things, there can be no real interaction on those things. There can be no giving. So, for example, just um, something that you know, is a little bit simplistic with the illustration. When I was about 12 or 13, I grew up with an, interested in playing, an interest in playing guitar. So for, I think, my 12th birthday, my dad got me a guitar for my birthday, and it was, it was amazing. I was really uh, thrilled to get it. But when I got it, I was too lazy 
um, to actually apply myself to learning how to play this instrument. And so it literally sat in a corner collecting dust. I mean, it, like, it got so dusty, you could put your finger on it and like write words on it. And my dad would play it sometimes, and he would try to get me interested in it, but I never applied any interest. So he gave me something that I never actually used, something that would have opened up a potential for interaction that just kind of laid there and collected dust. So just the concept first of God being a father to us, what, what purpose ser- prayer serves is helping us to gain an interest in the things that God wants us to develop an interest in so that there can be meaningful, recognizable interaction on the basis of those mature interests. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 7. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of your power and your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So first thing is, the the writer here is David, but I'll just refer to him as the psalmist. How interested is the psalmist's in God's interests. How interested is the psalmist in the things that God does apart from himself? You look at verse uh, 4. Your works will be declared, your mighty acts. Verse 5, the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wonderful works. Verse 6, men shall speak of the power of your mighty acts, your greatness. Verse 7, the memory of your abundant goodness and your righteousness. David here, the psalmist, is seeking God on the basis of who he is and what he's done. He is allowing God to reveal himself, and he's showing an ambition to understand those things. The first point in the outline under this is with the child's mind. How, how is a toddler's mind specifically commonly described? I've usually heard a child's mind described as a sponge. I mean, it just naturally just absorbs everything. And a child is just constantly learning and constantly developing. Look at verse... How devoted is the psalmist to absorbing like a sponge the things that are of God? And I love the language in the beginning of the psalm. This is a psalm where the psalmist is dedicated to commanding himself. So he says, I'm going to do this. This is something that I'm going to make sure that I do in verse 2 every day. He's saying that he will meditate on his wonderful works and his splendor and majesty. And so the psalmist is applying a discipline. So when we're thinking about God as our Father in heaven, we obviously can't see God with our eyes. And we with the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of faith, we need to dedicate ourselves in understanding how much there is to understand about God, to absorb about God, that will be left unseen if we do not seek to comprehend by faith. John chapter 6, 44 and 45, for instance. Jesus when speaking to crowds, would say, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in verse 45, he qualifies how that happens. And verse 45 is oftentimes missed when that verse is talked about. How are we drawn to God? In verse 45, Jesus says, it is written the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. They shall all be taught of God. We're drawn to God. We learn to love God. We learn to admire God 
when we learn about who he is. So again, notice the language. You see, his language is saturated with the knowledge of God. This psalmist has been taught and has meditated on the things that God has done. Where did he find out about his mighty acts? Where did the psalmist learn about the splendor of his majesty? Where did he learn about his wonderful works or his power and awesome acts? Where did he learn about the memory of his abundant goodness and his righteousness? Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are two psalms that are pillars of truth in the book of Psalms that talk about the glory of the law of the Lord and the power of the word of God to change and convert the heart, to enlighten the eyes of the simple-minded and to bring wisdom to them. And so when we learn about God and his word, it's taking what we're learning and applying that learning into our minds that gives us that childlike faith to look up to and admire God and to meditate on his works. I think another thing about this is when I was younger, um, there are a lot of ways that I failed to honor my father. Um, There's a lot of ways that I didn't appreciate what my father was doing for our family. Um, There's a lot of things that I didn't understand that he was doing. And a lot of that isn't necessarily um, because of anything wrong. Uh, It's because there was so much going on in my father's mind. There was so much going on in his life that I really didn't have the capacity to even understand until I was older. There were problems that my family had uh, when I was growing up. Um, Particularly, there was a time in my family's life when uh, my family went bankrupt. And there were spiritual problems that my dad faced in that time. And and a lot of those things I just, I didn't understand. But as I get older and, and as I learn more about the heart that was in my dad in those times and how he's changed and, you know, as I appreciate those things more, it, it, it gives clarity to bring honor. So as I reflect on those things and as I learn more about my father in those times, it equips me to give more honor. The same with God. As we understand ways that God has been dishonored, ways that we've dishonored God and failed to appreciate his grace, As we recognize how God is not recognized in the world, all of those things, when we learn the splendor of his majesty, the depth of the glory of his heart, it motivates us to want to set his name apart and pursue the glory of who he is apart from ourselves. So another thing, too, is with God being a father, he mentions, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is is kind of a, it's like a unique word that you probably aren't going to use ever outside of biblical terms. Um, But hallowed is the idea of setting something aside as sacred. Um, It's putting it somewhere special to preserve it, putting in a high position. It's the idea of something being made holy, that there's a special purpose. There's something distinct about this that's very special. Look at Psalm 45, verse 1. The psalmist says, I will extol you, my God, O King. That word for extol is about the most passionate word that could possibly be used for worship. It's the idea of deliberately putting somebody or something in the absolute highest possible position. So to extol is literally to put first, to put high. So the psalmist is recognizing that God, in his own heart, he's going to put God first. He's going to put God in the highest possible position. So when we're setting aside God's name as holy, it's not just that we're not going to use his name in a blasphemous way or take his name in vain. It's the idea of wanting to put his name in the highest possible position, not just in our language, but in our lives, in our devotion to God. We put God in the highest place. One last point on all of this 
verse 2 and 3. Is David concerned only with praising God in the present? You look at the end of verse 2 and look at the end of verse 3. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 2. When is David most looking forward to praising God? When he says forever and ever, um, I don't take that to be just a present exaggeration. I take that to mean that David understood that in eternal life there would come a time when he would be able to praise God unlimited, in an unlimited capacity. That there would be a time that would come when he would get to be with God forever and at that time he would be liberated to be able to praise God forever and ever. One of the hardest things about the present, I think, is we learn more about who God is and the glory of who he is, how special he is, and all the great things that God does One of the hardest things is that in the present, there are so many things that hinder praise to God. There's so many things that hinder praise. There's the hindrance of time. There's the hindrance of energy, just being tired, not being motivated. There's the hindrance of temptation. There's the hindrance of suffering. There's the hindrance of being surrounded by people who don't see that God is worthy to be praised and it's so easy to be influenced by how God is not praised or honored in the world. And there's just hindrances in, again, just not having personal time to give God praise with our mouths. And I think David here, in recognizing how worthy God was to be praised, he saw that God is worthy to be praised at all times. And the beauty of, of, of his hope of eternal life was the promise of being able to praise God forever and ever. And I think inherently within this, um, I don't know if you've seen videos of parents being reunited with their children after they've been on military leave. Um, Neil uh, Brooks, a member of the congregation here, he's currently in uh, South Korea, and his wife just gave birth to a baby uh, not that long ago, and he has two other children in his household. How often do you think Neil thinks about his family? How often do you think Neil considers how amazing it'll be to be reunited with his children? Do you think his children's anticipation of that uh, can compare to his? One thing I like about those videos uh, when people record children being reunited with their parents is seeing the mutual overwhelming emotional joy that's in both parties when they come back together. I think David is recognizing that, yes, he wants to be with God forever, but a part of what motivates him to desire to praise God is he recognizes that God's love for him so far outweighs his love for God that it's really God who initiates this concern and this ambition. And so one of the greatest things about seeing God as our Father is knowing that as excited as we may be to get to heaven, God is more excited for us to be with him. God seeks reunion with his children. Verses 10 and 11, if you'll turn back in your Bibles to Matthew 6, uh, 10 and 11. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So group these two verses together um, with the title of Seeking Greater Needs. I think prayer is, again, meant to help us to develop a greater interest, a maturing interest in what God is interested in. 
And here I think you can be summarized as things of the kingdom. That when we recognize what God's will is, when we recognize the nature of God's kingdom, we can begin to recognize how to live in a way where we can have a meaningful, clear relationship with God. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Turn back to Psalm 145. It's interesting that the psalmists actually talk about God's kingdom very frequently. Um, The kingdom of God is really not necessarily a New Testament concept exclusively. The prophets were constantly looking forward to this eternal kingdom that would never be uh, destroyed ever again. It could not be thwarted or moved or shaken. And in Psalm 145, David, the psalmist, speaks about God's kingdom and his sovereignty. Uh, Look at verses 10 through 16. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So your kingdom come. Kind of thinking about the statements, particularly in verse 11 through 13 here. When Jesus spoke about your kingdom coming, I think that's something we can understand a little bit better when we look at the way the psalmist spoke of the kingdom. And with with that, a question. When Jesus said, your kingdom come, is that only speaking about the events of Acts chapter 2? So again, I think it can be easy to think Jesus was only speaking of the kingdom coming and initiating, and once that happened, then that prayer is no longer something that we can pray or think of anymore. But I think when we think about the kingdom, especially we're going to look back in a moment at Psalm 45. What, what happened in Acts 2 pertaining to the kingdom? Because there is the truth, and Revelation 5 it said very specifically that the church is the kingdom, that the kingdom was given to the saints of God, But in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, um, when they were speaking in these different languages, he mentions in Psalm 145, verse 11 and 12, them speaking of the glory of his kingdom, making known his mighty deeds. I think it's an interesting connection in Acts 2, verse 11, that, that what they were saying, they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So I think it's clear God's kingdom did come in Acts chapter 2, but, but what happened specifically with his kingdom? That day, 3,000 souls when Peter preached that sermon about Jesus ascending to the throne of God to reign forever over his kingdom as both Lord and Christ, 3,000 souls surrendered to the rule and the dominion of the king. Can God's kingdom continue to spread? Can more people surrender themselves to the power and authority of the Messiah? Can more people recognize that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom? and that they need to be brought into that kingdom? Can our lives be more fully surrendered to the dominion of his kingdom? Can our marriages more fully reflect the glory of the authority of God? Can relationships between children and parents, between brethren, more fully reflect the dominion of Christ and the glory of his authority? Our thoughts and the way we direct our thoughts, like this psalm, our praise, our singing, our prayers, Can everything in our lives be more fully surrendered to the glory of the dominion of Christ? Look at Psalm 45, verse 3 through 5. 
This is one of my favorite psalms and one of my favorite statements in, in the psalms. Um, the psalmist here is really just pausing to meditate on who God is. And this passage, specifically verse 6 and 7, in Hebrews chapter 1, it's quoted as referring directly to Jesus as king. But look at verse 3 through 5. And I think this is a statement that relates to Jesus' words when in the prayer he said, your kingdom come. Think about what the psalmist is saying here about the king and to the king. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the hearts of the king's enemies. What is the psalmist praying for here? What is he urging this king to do? His kingdom come. King, gird your weapon on your side. Go out, fight, conquer, win. Conquer more people's lives. Let no one stand in your way. And this cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, go out and conquer for the principles of God's will. Let your kingdom come. Ride on victoriously. When I think about evangelism, I think a helpful thought of evangelism is recognizing that so much is happening by God's work that I'm not even able to fully participate in. God is pursuing souls. God is working in people's hearts. God is trying to direct people to consider the gospel. And what I need to do is recognize that God is constantly striving to bring people into the submission to the authority of his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice Psalm 143, related to your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, your kingdom come is not just that we want other people to be conquered by the authority of Christ and we want more people to surrender to his authority and recognize his authority and sovereignty in their own lives. In Psalm 143 verse 10 he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground for the sake of your name, O Lord. Revive me in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. The psalmist isn't just interested in God's will existing in writing. He's interested in learning how to apply it. I think so much of this relates to our salvation being by grace through faith and not by our own merit or by our own works. We'll be talking more about this in Hebrews chapter 13 this afternoon, how God is the one who equips us to do his will. How in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, when Paul urges the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, he says, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. And so the psalmist is asking God, God, I see your will, but I need help. Teach me, lead me, help me to understand how to apply your word. God's will in heaven is done with swiftness. God's will is done immediately by those who surround his throne. And so in seeking to do God's will, we seek immediacy in our obedience. We seek to surrender our will to the will of God, even when his will is not our own will. And I think throughout the Psalms you see this concept of justice, that God's will is that the righteous be redeemed and delivered. God's will is that wickedness be brought into, brought into account, that crooked things be made straight, that the wicked not succeed in the end, but that the righteous be vindicated. And so we're seeking for God's justice 
to gain the ultimate victory and seeking for God to win the battles that he's fighting. And in Psalm 145 again, verse 14 through 16, he mentions that God satisfies the desires of every living thing. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread in the model prayer. What if that was something we really said in our prayers? Just think about it. What if at the beginning of every day, a part of your prayer was, God, today, just give me daily bread. Just the most bare possible necessities of life. That's all I'm asking for. Do you think that would change your perspective? How do you think it would do that? I just want you to think, if you ever received from somebody so much generosity that it actually made you feel uncomfortable, like almost like a feeling of, of fear with how much you were receiving. I think if we really understand God's will, the will of the kingdom, we understand God's generosity, we understand our place, that God is a king ruling in heaven. And who are we to be noticed by God? Who are we to think we have a right to anything that God gives? And so then when I receive abundance, I recognize that it's an act of abundant mercy, that it is a great work for God who is in heaven to even give me even bare consideration for my own basic needs. And I no longer consider God to be a machine just automatically turning out things, but I recognize that God gives by choice, and that as God gives by choice, I need to not take for granted the merciful choices God, made, God uh, makes to give me provisions. Uh, and finally, in verse 12 through 13 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us in our prayers to seek deliverance. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 through 13. It says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the New American Standard has an insertion here that um, may not be in some of your translations. He says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to think first about this idea of forgiving debts. Go back to Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9. The psalmists recognize God's mercy, his compassion, his everlasting loving kindnesses, and they stand in awe at the depth and measure of God's mercy. And verse 8 and 9, you see that in Psalm 145. The psalmist says, The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. But sometimes when I read the psalmists, the way that they speak about sin, they have so much emotional intensity when thinking about their sin. So much sorrow for the things that they had done that they recognized had hurt God and broken their relationship with God. So much intensity toward repentance. And when I reflect on that intensity in the Psalms, I don't see that in myself. I think something that helps with understanding that intensity is in the Old Testament, they were surrounded by images of the reality of sin with the temple system, with the animal sacrifices. All of those things gave them a sense of reality to their iniquities. How did Jesus speak about sin? Forgive us our debts. Are debts real? Is there something tangible about that? Well, it depends on how you think about it. 
if my debt isn't being called in, it can seem like it's just an imaginary concept, right? But you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus taught a parable about this. There was a man who owed 10,000 talents. This would have been millions of dollars. And to my understanding, uh, in the Roman system or whatever of numbers, 10,000 talents was literally like the highest possible number you could count to. So it's like he owed as much money as a human being could ever owe. It's, it's nearly unrealistic how much he was owing. And I imagine your debt doesn't get to that point unless you don't think that this is real. Well, the day that the person he was indebted to called him to account, the weight of that debt was overwhelming. The reality of that debt was crushing. And all he could do was beg for mercy. And so he released him of his debt. And the problem is when when we don't let the reality of our sin and the consequences of sin, when we don't allow those things to become meditated, tangible realities that God has released us from, we can be in danger of responding the same way the man in the parable responded. There was someone else who owed him 100 denarii, which out of that context, 100 denarii is 100 days wages. I mean, that, that realistically is a very large amount of money. But in the context, what does that even amount to compared to this 10,000 talent debt that he was just freely released from? And so because he was not merciful to his fellow servant as he had been shown mercy, the master committed him to torture until he would repay the debt that he had previously owed. The idea is prayer should give us a growing understanding of the reality of God's forgiveness. And one of the greatest and most important works within our faith is appreciating with growing gratitude what God did for us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross. We're reading Colossians in our Bible study, and in Colossians chapter 2, he reflects on what God did in baptism when he canceled out the certificate of debt concerning of decrees that were against us. And so when Paul would reflect on God's work in forgiveness, he saw it as a reality that there was something that had been done that it occurred something or accrued something very real that God had to release us from that we could not repay ourselves. Listen, if we confess Jesus as Lord, then the debt of our sin was real. And it was more expensive than money. It was more expensive than things that don't have breath that we give in exchange for goods. It was more expensive than human lives that with sin don't have the value that one single righteous life had to God as his own son. The debt of sin is a reality. And the more we appreciate that reality in Psalm 145, 8 and 9, the more we stand in awe of the graciousness and mercy and loving kindness of God. And then in verse 10, we in turn give God thanks for the mercy he's extended. Psalm 103, just as an example on your outline, uh, the psalmist reflects on these things and he says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor awarded us according to our iniquities. And so the psalmist would use very vivid, they would use different words to describe sin. They would think of these things in different ways and they would use different words to describe the glory of God's forgiveness because as the psalmist here was dedicated to giving God praise and putting himself in a controlled discipline to direct himself there, they also would direct themselves very deliberately to defining things the way that God had defined them so they could have the deepest possible conviction of their sin and the deepest possible love for God and for his mercies. 
Back to Psalm 145, uh, 17 through 20. Um, Not only appreciating God's mercy in releasing us from sin and recognizing that we need that mercy and need to extend that mercy then to others as a means of appreciating it, but we also seek God's deliverance from temptation and his protection. Look at Psalm 145, 17 through 20. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. How did the psalmist here see God? Did he see God as distant? God as someone who does not really interact with him or respond? Did he see prayer as a way of speaking to a brick wall? That, you know, well, God's going to do whatever God's going to do, and it doesn't really matter what I say. Nothing's really going to happen ultimately. Look back at verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The end of verse 19, the second phrase, he will also hear their cry and will save them. David, when he reflected on God's deliverance, he recognized that God was near to those who call upon him in truth. He recognized that God listened and responded swiftly. Jesus, when in a similar way, spoke about prayer, a passage that I think is easy to misuse in its application, he cursed a fig tree uh, when he was entering Jerusalem. The disciples saw the fig tree was cursed from the roots up and bore no fruit when Jesus had spoke against it. And they said, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed is uh, barren. And he said, anything you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and you will receive it. And a misunderstanding of God, not hallowing his name or revering him outside of ourselves, that statement can be taken as, oh, So God's like a genie then. You know, if I ask him for whatever and, you know, ask in some kind of faith that he's going to give it to me, then he's guaranteeing to give it to me. The key thing is Jesus qualifies it by faith. Notice in verse 18 of Psalm 145, to all who call upon him in truth. Jesus is clarifying that by appearance, it might look like to us, well, I don't see what God is doing, so God must not be listening. I don't see God's deliverance very visibly, so God must not be delivering me. I don't see God protecting me, so God must not be protecting me. No, Jesus is trying to open our minds to recognize that when we understand who God is, when we understand the nature of his work, the nature of his kingdom, God is near to us to deliver us, and that God is swift and immediate. As 2 Peter chapter 2 says, God is not slow concerning his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should, should perish. So the prayer narrows our ambitions and our concerns and opens our hearts to see the faithfulness of his love. If there's one theme of the Psalms, just one, that I could summarize it into, it's that God is the God who delivers. The reason why there's so much praise at the end of the book of Psalms is because the psalmist recognize God's deliverances. They recognize that he will always deliver according to his promises. He will always deliver the righteous who cry out to him in truth, that God's faithfulness can be relied on confidently when that reliance is based in truth. 
So Psalm 145, verse 21, related to the way that Jesus ends his prayer. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The purpose of prayer, to extol God, to recognize God's work, to recognize his protection, to recognize his love, to recognize his faithfulness to his children, to recognize our need for him, to narrow our view to understand that there are greater needs that God defines for us other than just present, worldly, physical needs. That there are greater things that God is striving to help us to see that he is doing very proactively, not only of himself, but in direct response to our crying out to him. So just as a child in infancy develops an appreciation for higher things as they age and they change their habits, they change how they interact with their parents in a way that reflects a matured comprehension. We, in the same way, through prayer, mature our comprehension of God and change our lives and change our will around his. So if you're here this morning and you haven't surrendered to the glory of God and his kingdom, I appeal to you to think about the gospel's call, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that as he rose from the dead, it's a guarantee that God will call into account every person before the judgment seat of Christ. And God is freely offering us to see the glory of his freedom that he's offering through the gospel. If there's anything that we can do for you according to God's ambition to save your soul or anything else according to his will that needs to be made known, please bring it forward while we stand inside.